Good morning and welcome to episode 532 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus presented by the BaseballReference.com Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland.com, joined as always by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. And today we have a guest and I've been wanting to talk about the Mets for a while. I know it's the middle of pennant race season and the Mets are not really relevant in that respect, but they have some interesting things going on and as it happens, we scheduled this interview yesterday, and since then there's been a bunch of Mets news. I got my finger on the pulse, the irregular, weak pulse of the New York Mets. Uh, so today we bring in Newsday's Mets beat writer, Mark Kerrig, one of our favorite beat writers, to to tell us about the Mets. Hey, Mark. Hey, how you doing? Uh, just keeping an eye on the pulse here <laughs> for the paddles. Yeah, right. So we'll we'll start with the news that broke earlier this afternoon. And this is actually your off day that you were interrupting to talk to us. So you've not been reporting this story, but you can fill us in a little bit. There has been a lawsuit that has been filed by the team's former executive vice president for marketing and ticket sales against Jeff Wilpon and the Mets. So can you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, um, essentially in federal court, um, there was a lawsuit filed by Lee Castrogene, who um, was the uh, you know, basically the head honcho for tickets and marketing, alleging that uh, Jeff Wilpon um, you know, humiliated her um, for having a baby out of wedlock and ultimately um, discriminated against her because it led to her dismissal. So um, you know, she fired uh, a few weeks ago. Um, she alleges in the suit that very shortly... Um, after she had an attorney contact the team about, um, you know, filing a, or, or having a discrimination issue, she was fired uh, very shortly after that. So, um, you know, that's essentially where it stands. The team, um, not too long ago, released a statement saying that uh, the charges were without merit. Um, and so that's where everything stands. But, um, you know, uh, regardless of the outcome of this thing, obviously this ownership group's already been under fire, so this only adds uh, to the list of grievances, I guess, that uh, fans have. Again, regardless of um, the outcome of this, it certainly, uh, at least on the surface, doesn't speak very well um, you know, about the culture of the team. Right. Of course, every other team in professional sports, everything starts with uh, the people signing the paychecks. So, um, yeah, just another... Another uh, another black eye, so to speak, um, mm-hmm. is what's like it should be, at least initially. Right. And the, the allegations are, uh, if they are without merit, they are oddly specific. It sounds like there are lots of uh, particular situations described in this suit that was filed. So if they are without merit, it will be interesting to see how that plays out. But there, there haven't been... Uh, of all the criticisms that have been lodged against Wilpon and against this ownership group, is this one that that has been lodged before? Are you aware of this? Have there been any whispers about this sort of treatment going on in this in this front office? You know, I, I don't think I've come across anything per se that would fit under this uh, in this box, so to speak. But I mean, I will say, like, you know, there's always been, and I think there always will be grumblings about the culture in the organization for sure you know whether it's general competence or or whatever you know just i guess um you know the culture of the organization as a whole has been something that and this is pretty well documented has been um questioned in the public view 
Um, there have been instances that have come out that aren't very flattering, you know, just about how uh, your business is conducted um, in and around the team. So, uh, you know, without getting into the details, and it wouldn't be fair necessarily to pass hearsay on, but I will say just overall in general, there's been question about what kind of, or questions about what kind of culture exists with, within the Mets and, um, you know, how much Jeff and Fred and, and the rest of the ownership group has to do with that. So I, I would certainly say that, um, you know, on a pretty uh, fundamental level, something like this would fall into that category. Yet again, questioning, you know, what kind of culture exists within the ownership group here and, you know, how that obviously filters down to the rest of the organization. To transition to the team on the field or the team that will be on the field potentially next year, there were some comments that came out earlier this week from Sandy Alderson and, and they were maybe reminiscent of past comments by Sandy Alderson, sort of seemingly setting expectations low for the coming winter. He, His statement was, it's going to be prohibitive, but improving a team isn't always a function of just dollars spent. Most of the improvement that came from the Mets this year had little to do with the overall spending, so it doesn't equate. We'll have some flexibility. We'll be able to do some things. We just have to see what's there. In addition to the young players that are coming through, we need to add maybe one or two veterans next year. That's the thing about free agents. You've got to be careful because they don't all work out. The quick fix isn't always the best. So I'm sure that gets Mets fans pulses pounding for <laughs> for the upcoming winter. So I don't know how to to evaluate Sandy Alderson and this front office, really, because it seems like no one ever really knows how much money they have to spend, including maybe them. And so you can look at their payrolls and say, well, competitive teams have been built with smaller payrolls by, by other teams in other cities. And so theoretically they, they perhaps could have constructed a, a winner under these circumstances. And yet it seems like the, the goal posts keep moving and, and no one ever really seems to know where this team stands financially. So do we even know enough to, to pass judgment one way or another on, on Alderson and, and the rest of his front office? That's such, that's such a great question. And I guess we'll start from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Those comments are essentially describing the status quo that has existed here for the last three or four years. And until they actually spend money, and, and when I say spend money, it's go beyond just reinvesting funds that are coming off the books. Okay, so actually taking their payroll back to like, you know, somewhere north of, of $100 million where it hasn't been since uh, their financial mess uh, first started started seeping to the public view. But basically, until they do that, they can talk and whatever, and just, just you've got to assume uh, that it's all the same, which is they're going to function on what is relatively a shoestring budget. So the fact that Sandy's out there saying these things publicly, and it's not like you've got to read really tight between the lines to hear what he's saying there, um, is, is really no surprise because um, I don't think they've had any indication in the front office that anything is going to change. And so I think it's clear from the comments they're just going to assume that it is business as usual, which isn't necessarily good business, but you know it's sort of what it's been and will continue to be. So now that said, you talk about how do you evaluate a front office, which I think is a great question because um, if – they were operating with what you would typically think 
uh, is a budget you would expect from a New York team. And, and the infamous quote now is Paul DePodesta at the beginning of all of this saying, it's like doing Moneyball with money, except it's just been Moneyball without <laughs> the money, which is just straight up plain old Moneyball. But anyway, um, you know, like if, if that had actually been the case, then I think there's a strong case to be made against this front office because certainly there's been time to make some progress and, and really all they've done is just basically, you know, put together a bunch of 74-win teams. And, um, you know, while there has been progress in the minor leagues, including with the pitching, um, very little of it has translated into wins and losses, you know, that you can see above what they've just done uh, in the past. So, but you can't really evaluate the front office in that regard at all because, of, as you mentioned, there's really um, well, been very little... Uh, as far as budget and certainly spending and all that stuff. So then what's the fair way to do it? I think the fair way to do it is to go and see what are the situations where you take a payroll that's 140 million bucks or 150 million bucks and whack 60 million dollars off of it and you know see basically how fast they can go um, and, and rebuild from that scenario without trading some of their better players for various reasons. Now I think the thing that differentiates this market um, from from really much, pretty much any others, really, is, is the pressure to win. Now, you can debate whether that actually exists or not, and that's fine. But the bottom line is the people who own the teams feel it, and the people that make decisions for the people who own the teams feel it. So whether it actually exists or not is sort of like the boogeyman, right? I mean, if, if we can prove that he doesn't exist, but if people respond to it as if it does, then for our purposes, it does. So... These guys are limited by what they can do or can't do financially, and they're also limited by um, what is a constant perception battle here, which is pretty ridiculous to say, seeing as that they constantly lose that perception battle. But believe it or not, they're actually trying to fight it and win it. And that also means doing things like not trading David Wright, when in the baseball context, maybe they should have, in the same way that the New York Yankees, when they had Robinson Cano steaming toward free agency and probably knowing that A, they didn't have a team that was good enough to win it all, and B, they had a very small chance of meeting this guy's demands. The right baseball thing to do would have been to trade him. Well, they're not going to do that in New York, not uh, you know, not with all the pressure, not with the expectations, and, and sort of the fear they have that if they do move like that, um, it sends a horrible message, and all of a sudden people just straight up stop coming, and then you know, that leads to all sorts of bad things if you're a sports team owner in New York. But anyway... Um, I think that's what makes it very difficult to um, evaluate the front office. And so when you, when you factor all that in, in fact, they've had no money to spend. They've slashed $60 million bucks from the payroll over the last couple of years. And they're limited by the kinds of moves they can make because people here would flip out and go nuts if they traded a guy like David Wright. Um, well, you know, it's the only way they can really make progress is to do it slowly and do it incrementally. And I think they've done that. So... I guess that's a long answer for considering the constraints. I think they've done a pretty solid job. Um, is, is that necessarily easy for a fan to sort of buy? I don't think so. And I really don't blame them when they don't. But objectively, when you look at all the stuff they've had to deal with, basically these guys have done a pretty good job of staying afloat considering that they're in a straitjacket. So the thing about the money ball with no money thing is that uh, I don't even really know what I would identify as... I mean, the thing about, well, I, I don't know what I would identify as the character of this front office. You sort of knew 
the Billy Bean front office in the Moneyball era, you kind of knew what they stood for and what that meant. There was sort of a storyline about what they were doing, and that's why it worked. And I don't, I, I'm not saying that there isn't that storyline in the Mets front office, but I don't actually know what it is. And I don't know, maybe there isn't one because, like you say, they have uh, this sort of perpetual limbo and uh, different obligations to their market. But if you, if somebody gave you, you know, two million dollars to write a book about how brilliant the Mets front office is, and like you just you agreed because it's two million dollars. Why not? You don't care if it's necessarily <laughs> true, but you have to make it convincing. What would be like? Like what would be? What would you write about? What's the character of these guys? Ah, oh, man, it's a great question. I wish this were an actual offer, <laughs> but make it good enough. We have uh, good uh, listeners. I'll tell you what, man. It, it really yeah, is yeah. like if I have to. I think these guys do a really a tough job because they're basically having to deal with this unpredictable situation with the finances. They've got to deal with an ownership group that's constantly under fire, and and a lot of it's self-inflicted. I think they've just done such a poor job of dealing with the public with these issues. I think what you've got are guys that are just good soldiers, basically. Or trying to be, because you're never going to hear Sandy Alderson whine about the situation he's in, necessarily. Even though I feel like he'd be perfectly justified to do so, because what these guys have been asked to do, I I don't know if there's any front office in baseball that could just come in here and give them the exact same constraints, you know, be able to make some tangible progress, because. You know, he gets hammered a lot, Sandy Alderson, for this free agent signings that he's had. And then people go nuts about Chris Young. I mean, that was like everybody's favorite New York, you know, punching bag this year. But at the end of the day, he lost on a one-year, $7.25 million contract, which is like getting pissed off that you lost a buck on a lottery ticket when you really look at the, the context of that deal. So, you know, I think... What we're seeing here is a bunch of guys who are trying to be good soldiers and power through, knowing that they've got to go for the long haul and just sort of rebuild without ever saying that they're rebuilding um, and rebuild without actually doing it. You know, meaning, again, that uh, there just was no scenario, even though I feel like we could make a very good argument they should have, there was no scenario where they could have traded David Wright before um, extending him. So, yeah, like I think... To me, this is a story, I guess, over the last couple of years of guys trying to fight um, you know, a battle that ultimately, um, I just feel like there's so many factors standing in their way. Um, you know, and they've tried to do it. They've tried to play the long game. Uh, they've tried to make incremental progress. And I think there are lots of parts of the organization where you can see that. But at the end of the day, I feel like there's just so many hurdles standing in their way that expecting anything but this you know, I don't know how reasonable that would have been, regardless. I mean, I think that it's a front office that is smart. I think they use their resources when they can. I think um, they think decisions through maybe to a fault. You know, when you talk to other teams that deal with the Mets, I think a common complaint that I've heard is that it seems like they're just not acting fast enough. And so I think it puts people off from doing business with them in regards to trades and that sort of thing. But um, so they haven't been perfect. And, you know, they miss just like every other front, every other front office misses. I mean, and they, Chris Young is that guy. But I feel like with their constraints, I think they fought the good fight. And I just feel like at some point, though, there's too many things that you know, they're just going to have to power through. And that's why this, this process has taken so long and really hasn't been very much fun for the fans to sit through, that's for sure. So I guess it's being good soldiers. Uh, you know, 
Uh, I don't know if that's two million bucks, but well, do well, they have yeah. any? Is there any tactic, big or small, that the Mets do that twenty-five other smart teams don't do? Any tactic? I mean, I feel like they've got a grasp of, you know. So when I mean, you talk about like their mindset, I guess. Like, I had a conversation with Sandy recently about. Uh, it was in spring training, actually. It was me and like a smaller group of reporters, and the issue was Tommy John surgery and you know the recurrence of Tommy John and, and why this has become an issue. And, and Sandy brought up what I thought was an interesting point in that part of the problem with, Sandy, with, with um, Tommy John research is that it hasn't been all put together. It's, it's been do, it's been done, you know, sort of piecemeal by different people with different interests and, and really not put together at all. And I think when he was talking about solving this issue, he thought that one of the things that's got to happen is that those resources get pooled together. And this is where I thought, you know, this sort of was an insight of the mindset here is that it's not just important to pool it together, but then to be smart enough to mine through that giant gob of information, um, you know, and, and be able to find something useful out of it, you know, be able to look at it objectively, be able to look at it um, in a way where, you know, you're some gain to having all of this. So, the fact that he's at that level of thinking that where it is important not just to gather information and also even the importance of gathering the information, but then the importance of mining it and doing it in an intelligent way, I think, you know, that's something that, you know, in, in whatever forms, teams that win, teams that do well, they all do that. So I think there's a, certainly a mindset there within the front office and culturally speaking that, um, you know, that I think they share a common DNA with teams that do it well. I just think... Um, ultimately, there there's some tools that other teams may have at their disposal that this one doesn't. Part of that is the freedom to make whatever moves they want, and also the financial flexibility that um, you know that seems to be lacking here. So I promise Mets fans we will get to some questions that make you happy here eventually. But first, David Wright has been shut down for the rest of the year. Is your sense that? This is something that he has made worse by playing through or not? Is it is it something that he has endangered future seasons by trying to play through? Is it going to be a concern heading into next year? Well, I think it will be a concern heading into next year, and that's because of who he is, what this injury is, and the fact that, yes, he did play through it for such a long period of time. Now, you know, I, I usually try to steer clear of making, like, you know, medical judgments because I really didn't go to medical school and, you know, I haven't looked at his tests or anything like that. But I just think because it's a shoulder, because it's something that uh, happened earlier in the year and he, and he obviously tried to play through, certainly there's some concern there. I mean, I know they're already talking about doing a follow-up MRI. Um, I think part of the, you know, and one, actually Sandy Alderson said this yesterday, one of the uh, steps they might take to follow up is a dye contrast MRI, um, you know, try to get a better look at that shoulder. And that's only something you can do when you shut a guy down because it's an invasive procedure. So the fact that uh, there's a dye contrast MRI possible and the fact they've shut him down, I think those things are certainly related. And um, you know, if they're having to take a look uh, at the shoulder that way, then certainly I think you know, it's not necessarily the best sign. So, um, you know, yeah, I, I guess uh, that said, you know, moving forward, I think it is an issue because of who he is, how old he is, um, you know, how much... Um, you know, he's already been through as far as injuries the last couple of years. So it is a huge issue for them. And, um, you know, until he comes back and shows that he can produce like he did before the injury, I think it's going to be a question whether 
um, you know, you've seen the last of David Wright in his prime because this is seems like to me, um, you know, has the makings of potentially major injury or something that's at least like, um, you know, going to have to be something you keep your eye on. And um, considering his prominence, yeah, that all that stuff together, is, this is a, a major issue for the franchise, and it's certainly one that uh, they're going to have to keep an eye on moving forward. So are they considering moving the fences in again now so that a, a weakened David Wright can still hit home runs? Or what? what is the motivation? You, you wrote an article about this and how it might favor the team. What do you think the, the rationale is? Well, I think obviously when you move the fences in, both sides are going to benefit because both sides are going to hit home runs. But I think what it looks like they're banking on is that if they go into the offseason, they've got all these young power arms and and you know young power arms that by the way look like they're not the type to give up a bunch of home runs then i think the calculation is that they can bring those fences and help their guys out and because they've got pitching that's good enough to sort of smother other other batters and that that's a trade-off that's worth making and i think they just happen to have a team obviously where you know granderson's left-handed and that's where a lot of his fly balls end up in that right center field area david wright when he's healthy um, you know, had been a guy that had always, you know, hit the ball for power the other way. Travis Darno, that was always his scouting report in the minor leagues, is a guy who could go the other way with some power, and Lucas Dude is left-handed. So it just seems like all of these things are sort of mixed together, and it, and it, and it may work for him. And I think that's what some of the motivation is, is uh, trying to make it a place that's a little more friendly for their own hitters, um, but also a risk that's worth taking because they feel like, They've got good enough pitching to help negate whatever advantage the opposing team would get from that. And you know, and I wrote this morning that uh, maybe this is stuff that you know you can see kind of playing into a larger plan, perhaps because if, if as you mentioned earlier, and Sandy Alderson's talking about not spending much money, that means you're left if you're the Mets trying to improve, uh, trying to get more production other guys already have on hand because you're already paying him. And so moving in the fences seems to fit into that goal. Um, you know, pretty easily, especially given the fact that their pitching um, could be good enough to help negate that advantage for teams coming into City Field. You mentioned Darno, so we can talk about him for a minute. So that's a positive development. So he is leading the league in past balls, but he also does some other things well defensively, and he's hit fairly well of late. So uh, is the is the danger past here? Are we out of the the woods with him? Are people still talking about? him potentially changing positions well that for that reference you make there about changing positions like that's just i think managers jobs and feel the, the jobs of field staffs is to talk about whatever scenario i mean it's they're, they're supposed to go through and kind of you know run these off-the-wall scenarios within you know within the room and then you know, just in case, you know, something happens or whatever. And, and at one point or another, Terry Collins had one of these discussions with his field staff about moving Travis Darno to left field. Um, here's the thing about those discussions. That's literally just throwing stuff off the wall because at no point does that stuff usually go upstairs. Until it goes upstairs to the people who actually make those decisions, then it's nothing but talk and chatter for a coaching staff that's just doing its job. So in this case, there's, I mean, no, Travis Darno is not going anywhere. They didn't trade a Cy Young Award-winning pitcher for a guy to go play left field, do it poorly, and also hit, uh, you know, produce offensively below average for that position. You know, they're perfectly fine with him back there. Yes, pass ball issues, his throwing mechanics have been weird this year. Um, you know, but 
they value pitch framing, and he's very, very good at it. And so I feel like that's a trade-off they're willing to make, and especially when he's hitting and hitting for extra bases, hitting for a little bit of power, um, it's an even easier trade-off for them to make. So they value what he brings to the table behind the plate. They value the elite skill that he has behind the plate. Um, and they feel like he's starting to show and has shown that um, he'll be able to handle major league pitching. So uh, I don't envision him really going anywhere. I think they traded uh, for him, envisioning him to be a major piece as a foundation of the team, and I don't think anything's changed um, since he's come back and, and performed the way he has since his demotion to Vegas. Okay, and the guy who maybe has become the best story of the season, Jake deGrom, uh, Tell us why he was not really on the radar. He was, you know, in the, the BP preseason prospect rankings, he was listed as a factor on the farm, but not one of the, the top guys. He was not nationally ranked on any top 100 list or anything. He's been great. So why was he flying under the radar and how good is he going to be? I think some of that is the fact that they had so many guys that um, were on the radar for pitching. So, um, you know, Noah Syndergaard obviously was a talk of spring because he sort of fits into every box that you think of for like some big-time pitching prospect. Big, tall guy, throws hard. Uh, Terry Collins says he's got a curveball. It's a hook from hell, all this stuff. Like, I mean, it was pretty much every stereotypical thing you could think of for like a big-time pitching prospect. Well, you look at Jacob DeGrom, and he's none of that. He's skinny, got like long hair, sort of like, gangly, um, you know, exposition player in college uh, in a system where there was a bunch of young arms and, you know, really didn't stand out. I think some of that is because they've had, they had so many young arms. Some of it, too, is like he doesn't fit the typical mold. You know, he's six foot whatever, you know, six four, six five, and like, you know, you know, really, really, really skinny. Like he just doesn't look um, like a big-time pitching prospect. But um, he certainly pitched like one. So I think he's put himself on the map for sure. He should be the rookie of the year, I think, you know, despite the fact he hasn't had the hype. Um, he's put up the best numbers for any rookie pitcher, and I would say that, um, you know, I don't see a position player that should knock him out. Uh, if you just look at the numbers. But, um, you know, I think the Mets certainly see him as a guy um, that's going to stick around. And, again, he's one of those arms who does not give up a bunch of homers. Um, we're just talking about that with the staff that – Know, high-end guys that don't give up a lot of homers that got that he's one of them um, I think that's going to make him a factor moving forward um, and, you know but yeah ultimately it's just like what happens oftentimes when someone flies under the radar he just didn't look the part um, but you know given the opportunity and again he was called up here to be a reliever um, you know given the opportunity took advantage of it and you know here we are today I mean dude throws hard doesn't give up home runs uh, I thought I was most impressed by the fact that you know, he had initial success, got knocked around a little bit, and since then has settled down and it's actually probably pitching better than he has all year long. So um, pretty impressive stuff. Doesn't look the part. That's the way he flew under the radar, but um, certainly there's a lot to work with there, and the Mets are um, you know, certainly viewing him as a part of their future moving forward. Since uh, So with his success recently and with, with Wheeler's uh, success recently, I, I keep hearing about the 330 rule. Um, which uh, is, I guess, the Mets rule that pitchers uh, what can't throw 330 or more pitches over the course of three games or something like that. Uh, and usually when I see it referenced, it has some sort of um, 
negative adjective before it. Like I've seen it called the weird 330 rule and the notorious 330 rule and the infamous 330 rule. Uh, what's wrong with the 330 rule? That seems normal. So why is it controversial? I, I don't know, honestly. Like, I mean, that, that's a great question. It's, I, I don't know. I, I think, well, first of all, the rule itself is, is, is just a loose guideline. And, um, you know, I don't think one that was necessarily intended for public consumption. So, um, you know, Terry Collins let it slip in one of his pregame sessions, said that there's this kind of rule in place where you're trying to keep guys under 330 pitches, which is all well and good, except it doesn't follow the rule, especially with Zach Wheeler. So, um, you know, he basically gave people something to hammer him over the head with, and that's what they've done. So I guess that's the short answer is, um, you know, there is a rule in place. It's a guideline. It's something that field staff's talked about. It's arbitrary, like just about anything else with pitch counts and all that stuff. Um, but uh, it's silly, I think, to say that kind of stuff out publicly without checking to see if you've adhered to it. And in Terry's case with Zach Wheeler, he hasn't. And so here's the mess. So he basically gave people... Uh, yet another thing to hammer him about, and it's something I, I, I'm baffled by the fact that A, it would even come out, and B, um, that people keep making a giant deal of it. But, you know, I don't know. Is that the main source of tension between Collins and the front office, or is that why we're, think... we're even talking about whether there... Collins will be back, or are there other issues there? There's other issues there. I mean, I think with any other manager, when you're evaluating what they do, I mean, certainly how they handle young pitching is a big deal. So I don't think it's a 330 rule itself and all that stuff. I think it's more so um, just overall. Like, for instance, uh, how they handle Juris Familia, uh, the relief pitcher who's had such an awesome year for them. That has nothing to do with 330 pitches or over three appearances because he's a reliever. But, you know, they've been running him out there a lot, you know. And right about when all that stuff was happening with the 330 rule, shock of shocks, Juris Familia had like four days off. Uh, and he's healthy, which is just not something he's done much this this summer. So um, clearly the message got through to Terry that it's time to start watching these arms, relievers, the stars, all that stuff, 330 real or whatever. Uh, I think it's just the message has been uh, very clear. You know, start paying attention to the arms. I think, uh, you know, there's certainly other stuff going on there. And it's an evaluation they're going to have to make at the end of the year. Um, I think uh, certainly – you know, managing pitchers, um, but, you know, that's a big thing. But, you know, you have to also factor in how he deals with the clubhouse, uh, how he deals with the media, you know. I mean, that's sort of a thing, especially in a market like this where things like the 330 rule can get infamous or whatever it's been called. So, um, you know, there's certainly a lot more issues at play here than just this weird rule. Um, it's certainly, but, but certainly managing young pitching is a big one, and for obvious reasons because, uh, if they intend to win here, it's going to have to be because those guys come through because they just don't have the resources, um, both in players to trade and uh, in money um, to significantly upgrade their offense. At least that's my read on it going into this offseason. I just I don't see a scenario unless they get very, very lucky, somebody makes a stupid trade with them or whatever. I just don't see a scenario where um, they can go out there and uh, get a big bat or whatever people are pining for. Um, just because I just don't think they have the chips to do it. Um, but anyway, that's why it's important for them to manage young pitching. I think that's the big issue, but there's certainly more than that at play. Lastly, if they aren't going to go get a big bat, is the pitching enough, do you think? Will they go into next season 
if they've got Wheeler coming off the, the second half that he had and DeGrom and Harvey back and Nice and Cologne and G and all these guys, is that is that enough for the Mets to go into next year looking like a legitimate contender, do you think? I feel like for them to move the needle, they would have to do something with the pieces that they can trade. And I think in that case, you're looking at guys like a John Nice who has a super team-friendly contract, um, uh, Bartolo Colon, same deal, 11 million bucks. Yeah, he's older uh, and all that stuff, but uh, he's still, uh, you know, for what he produces, that's about right, I guess, like, you know, from uh, uh, talking to other teams. So um, those those two guys right there, I think people that they've got to really look into trading and trying to make something of, um, you know, on the offensive side. Uh, I think, I think, because Darno has had the second half that he's had, and because they value what he does behind the plate, that also means a guy like Kevin Pilecki is a guy that they might be uh, looking to move, or not looking to move, but certainly exploring the possibility of moving. He's a young catcher, um, had a, a very nice year. He's in AAA now. Um, so I think uh, whether they actually make some improvement or not is going to hinge basically on whether they can take pieces like that. You know, not the young pitching. No, those are those are their primary chips. You know, if they can take their secondary trade chips and make some kind of incremental improvement somewhere in this offense, you know, and then with whatever they have to play with financially, if they can, you know, basically take another Chris Young type flyer, except have it work. All right, that's what it's going to take for them to do it. And that, and I'm already that's a lot. So um, I think yeah, they could be better, but they're going to have to catch some luck, which they haven't had. Um, and they're going to have to do some creative things to make something out of their secondary trade chips. I think that's what it comes down to because I think there is a lot to like about the arms. For the first time, really, since Sandy's been here, they're not going to have to go rebuild the bullpen. I think they've got a pretty good one going in, moving forward. So I mean, there's a lot of stuff that they've improved at, you know, for sure, and I think they're clear improvements. But um, that said, for them to make a jump, I feel like there's still a lot of things that have to go right, and that means, you know, pretty much having like uh, an awesome off season, you know, by, by making these secondary trade chips into something you could use by maximizing whatever money you got. And then also on top of that, getting bounce back years from a guy like Curtis. And of course, as we talked about earlier from David Wright, again, that's a lot. So, you know, I'm pretty skeptical that all that stuff falls into place for him, but that's what it's going to take if they're going to make any progress moving forward. So it's not all doom and gloom and lawsuits and franchise stars getting shut down with shoulder injuries. There's there's also exciting young pitching and Juan Lagares playing center field and Anthony Recker being the hey, best-looking player what? in baseball. Lagares playing center field is no small thing. He's no. awesome. Mm-hmm. He's awesome. And, I, and I, you know, it kills me. I think, uh, like, I don't understand how people don't know more about this dude. Honestly, I, I feel like he just doesn't have same kind of national profile as he should. He's kind of in the, the DeGrom camp of no one really anticipating him being as good as he has been. Exactly, exactly. And, like, I mean, I don't know. I, this is all just – I've been covering baseball since 2008. I, I don't know if I've seen a defensive player dominate a game like he can. I mean, it's impressive. And, and just, you know, from the straight-up standpoint of watching a game for the art of it and for like the joy of it, I mean, God, it's, it's really cool watching him run the ball down to the gap. Because he he really does he's got you know a scout told me he's almost like watching like a free safety in a football game I mean he he just has such great knowledge of where he is at all times um, you know anticipation the athleticism to, to cover ground I mean it's 
know, it's 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 really impressive. And and for folks who haven't seen it, make sure to because I mean, really, every time he's in the lineup, he does something once a night where you're just like, wow, you know, that's like one half of one percent of guys that play this game can do that. I mean, that's no exaggeration. The dude is. Is, is magnificent and I'd urge people to, to check him out just a terrific terrific defensive player we urge people to check you out at Newsday and <laughs> on Twitter at Mark Carrig M-A-R-C-C-A-R-I-G you are a, a prolific tweeter and a expert mocker of other beat writers I would say so people should enjoy that and thanks for coming on you got it. Thanks for having me. And I guess you'll send the two million bucks. If that's in the mail, right? <laughs> that's all Sam's idea. I had nothing to do with that. He's uh, financing that. All right. And please support our sponsor, Baseball Reference. Go to baseballreference.com and subscribe to the Play Index using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on one year subscription. And we'll be back with another show tomorrow.